Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1329, entitled The Galaxy Ad Infinitum. <laughs> Our podcast title is Space Sweep Pods. <laughs> oh, very vain, glorious there. I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And the reason why I call today's show The Galaxy Ad Infinitum is because there's an old science fiction series called Quark, mm-hmm. which was about a bunch of space garbage men. Ah, I see. See the connection, connecting the dots there. Yeah, and that was sort of like uh, the coda, mm-hmm. like the uh, the salutation that they did when they were talking to their big giant head commander. <laughs> so it seemed appropriate, especially since the movie that we're going to discuss, amongst other things, well, we're going to talk about a movie called Space Sweepers, and Megan has brought a book in to talk about too. Yes, the book Love and Other Thought Experiments. Hmm. So, Space Sweepers. Now, this is a massive, epic South Korean space opera. Mm. Yeah, one of the first ones I think that's kind of they've done and made really popular and mainstream from what I could tell. So, very happy to dig into this because we've been covering a bit more Korean content and we love a good space opera, so this seemed like a great pick. Yes, it's directed by... Joe Sung Hee, and this is released on Netflix. It is. So it was originally meant to have a proper release and then, of course, COVID. So delay, delay, and then they went, well, let's just go straight to Netflix. And so that happened in multiple countries. Space Sweepers was its Western title and its Korean title is Sung Riho, which means uh, Spaceship Victory, I think, something victory like that. Oh, oh, I sense uh, an almost... A kindred spirit with the old Star Blazers space cruiser battleship Yamato. Mm. You know, there's sort of a thing there. Okay, yeah. Now, Joe Sung, he, he's actually got the perfect sort of CV for this movie because he majored in industrial design. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this film has a lot of industrial design in it. Then he went off to join a children's animation company and he did this 52-episode animated series called Barnacle Lou about a baby seagull who thinks he's a barnacle, so he rides around on a whale. (laughs) (laughs) Can't find too much about that, but that's all on the poster. Oh, wow. And 52 episodes, you said. I mean, that's a real stretch out. (laughs) Yeah. He did a short film in 2008 called Don't Step Out of the House, and so that's got this sort of thing about children being menaced by strangers in the basement of a house, so Mm -hmm. that's a very genre sort of concept. Mm -hmm. When he graduated from the Korean Film Academy, well, he made his debut a genre film as well called End of Animal. And this had this bit of horror and mystery and apocalyptic sort of themes. And there's this woman who's going to give birth 
and she's got to get back home and there's all these things that stop her from getting back to her hometown. Okay. Familiar Uh, story, yep. It is, isn't it? And he also did A Werewolf Boy in 2012. Very popular film, bit of a fantasy romance. Have you seen it? I haven't. I hadn't really heard of it, but I was having a little digging, but apparently it was a quite a big hit in Korea. Got a take, took in a lot of box office and sort of, I'm very sure, helped make his name so he could start, you know, get this gig making this film and so on, which he also wrote this film, so it must have been a passion project of his as well. I have seen it. It was a Melbourne International Film Festival choice. Ooh. It is a real heart did not create a force of space sweepers, I will never know. (laughs) That is actually what it says on the tin. Mm, Absolutely. I think the way this is portrayed and has been promoted, it's pretty true to life in terms of what you're getting. I think it's pretty easy to recognize some of the fun tropes that are popular in a good space opera. But yeah, I saw the trailer for this and right away I thought, okay, I want to check it out. I want to see how they build the little core team and what story they go through. Yeah, well, when I was thinking about tropes that uh, are familiar, Mm. immediately things like Quark, as I said, sprang to mind, Mm -hmm. obviously Firefly and The Expanse Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as well, Red Dwarf, (laughs) (laughs) Star Trek Lower Decks, Guardians of the Galaxy, and Cowboy Bebop. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Megan has programmed a track. From Cowboy Bebop, which track is this one, Megan? Yes, so this one is called Tank! Exclamation mark. So I thought this would be a really fun one to play because Cowboy Bebop is such a cool, smooth sound, really brings that nice vibe of setting out into space with a bit of, I don't know, what do you, like jazzy, jazzy undertone. So I thought this would be a fun one to play to kind of set the tone before we dig a bit into this particular space opera. So this mm. is from Cowboy Bebop, the anime. If you don't know, it's Japanese anime series. It's wonderful. It's quite a few years old now, but this is the, you'll recognize the signature music if you have seen it. Yeah. So fasten your seatbelts for Tank. Hi, this is Corey McAbee from Stingray Sam and the American Astronaut, and you're listening to Zero G on 3RRR-FM. He does the things that folks don't do that need to be done. That was, of course, the jazzy music from Cowboy Bebop, the anime. So that's by Seatbelts. And we played the track Tank. And we did play that because we are talking South Korean space opera space sweepers today. And so I thought that would be a nice little throwback to one of the classic space operas. And I do wonder now, I think they were doing a live action Cowboy Bebop reboot on Netflix. I wonder what the state of that is, given the state of the world and everything. I might investigate that after the show, but I thought that would be a nice little track to play considering that we are out in space. And yeah, talking uh, space sweepers, also known as Sungri Ho in Korea. Yeah. Now, Cowboy Bebop is essentially a good description, a space capsule comment about the crew of the good ship Victory, mm. which is, well, basically they, their job is the eponymous space sweeping. Mm. They're out there in the year 2092 in the orbital, mm-hmm. which is around Earth. Essentially, it's this vast freeform space city, industrial complex, residential, scientific, all sorts of different things, military. Mm-hmm. And the reason why we've gone so big in space in 2092 is because poor old Earth is in pretty bad straits. 
after a failed experiment to stop global warming, the Earth has been transformed into one giant snowball with only one train travelling across its surface. No, sorry. <laughs> wrong apocalypse. <laughs> you've, you've shorted out there, Rob. <laughs> Got the wrong uh, apocalyptic uh, scenario. 2,092 carriages long. <laughs> No, it's kind of similar to the premise of an old science fiction movie called Silent Running. The Earth has become nearly uninhabitable. It looks very much like Blade Runner, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. only with even more smog. Very smoggy, less neon, lots of gas mask fashion. It did also bring to mind, Rob, the robot series that we read of Isaac Asimov, the kind of city in the sky that we've got one that's kind of a utopia. There's a chosen few that live in harmony with nature and surrounds to bound everywhere through fields of green. Meanwhile, everyone on earth is slowly smoldering in a small pile. Yes, they have a setup that's very similar to that movie Elysium. Mm, Matt Damon. The UTS company that owns pretty much everything in space. Never trust a mega conglomerate company that is trying to do anything related to, you know, the future of humanity. I feel like we've learned now those corporations are usually evil. Don't trust them. Waylon Yutani, Wilfred, you know, it's it's all there. We've been burned before. We've been here. We know the drill. Yeah. James Sullivan is the guy who is in charge of all this, Mm -hmm. played by... Richard Armitage. Yes. He's introduced via voiceover at first. And I was like, is that Chris Hemsworth? It's not. It's Richard Armitage. But I think he has a bit of an Aussie accent, even though he's English. I always pictured him as being shorter after his turn in The Hobbit. Exactly. Thorin Oakenshield. Of course, I first ran into him as Sir Guy of Gisborne in the British Robin Hood series, mm-hmm. one of them anyway, and he was the voice of Trevor Belmont in Castlevania. Mm, yes. And, nice. of course, The Stranger. That's another new Netflix series. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And Captain America, the first Avenger fans, know him as the Nazi spy, Heinz Kruger, who – really was uh, the first mission of Steve Rogers' Captain America. Mm. He was also a pilot in Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, probably not his highlight role, but thought we'd shout that one out. One of the things that I liked about Richard Armitage's characterization is that he says that he speaks of developing and being drawn to the dualism in his characters. He says, if I'm offered the role of the hero, I immediately look for the anti-hero within. And so being offered the role of the slightly suspect, Mm. actually, okay, incredibly suspect mega CEO, Mm -hmm. that maybe he was trying to look for his motivation as as the villain. Yeah. Because few people think of themselves as a villain. Oh, yeah, exactly. And so you can look at this guy as as being a completely out-of-control billionaire essentially. Mm. And he does have this kind of um, moral superiority thing, humans are flawed, look at what you'll do kind of energy, which they put a little bit of effort into that part of the story, but I wouldn't say they really nail that necessarily. But he does try to have a little bit of a depth. I wouldn't say it's his deepest role, but yes, he's pretty good at being a bit of a sinister, you know, CEO fella. 
Mm. Now, the good ship Victory, which is kind of ironic because they're anything but victorious <laughs> at various stages of this, just as it's ironic, I suppose, that the, the ship in Firefly is called Serenity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, okay, it's got a four-person crew. Mm-hmm. There is Tiho. I'm actually trying to figure out exactly what role in the crew he plays. He's kind of a pilot. Yeah, yeah. I think he's kind of like the pilot character. He's not the captain of the ship. That's very clear. But he is kind of the key driver. Hmm. Quite literally, the space driver. Captain Jang, she is the no-nonsense, sunglass-wearing. Yeah. (laughs) Relatively diminutive, but still quite incredibly tough. <laughs> yeah, thought. I wouldn't get into a fight with her. And, you know, she's got brains to boot. It's very much uh, her backstory is very much around her being very, very smart as well and good with tech and, you know, she pimps out the ship and all of that kind of thing. So these two, Tai Ho, the pilot, and Captain Jang, the captain, those two, uh, so it's played by Song Jong-gi, and Kim Tidy, and those guys are pretty popular in Korea, especially Song Joong-ki. He is very popular over there. He started out in a variety show called Running Man, which is a popular variety show, and then he's been in a lot of film and TV since then. He's very well known over there. And Kim Tidy, she's also very popular. She was in the film The Handmaiden, which came out a little while ago and had a lot of good critical response in the West and was pretty well-received here as well. And she's in the historical K-drama Mr. Sunshine, which is also on Netflix. So uh, these guys have sort of dabbled in a little bit of genre before, but I think this is probably the first kind of spacey thing that they've done. Junki has been in um, the fantasy television series, The Arthdal Chronicles. <laughs> Loses something in the translation there. <laughs> also, um, Kim Tyree has been in the new series Alien, which is a sci-fi crime film. And mm. I say two series, a series, it's two parts. And that's uh, Choi Dong Hoon's one. So yeah, she has some some space credits, but they're in the future. Yeah. <laughs> These two characters are the male and female leads, at least the adults in the room. But there doesn't have to be chemistry between them because this is not that kind of film. Actually, that is a great point. I had not realised that until just now. How yeah. refreshing! Exactly. They just work together, you know? I didn't feel like there was anything missing either. It Mm. just goes to show you don't have to put that stuff in. Now, both of these characters, like everybody else in this film, have a great deal of baggage, and I don't want to unpack that baggage because Mm. it's a lot to do with the actual plot and the surprise twists and so on. So I'm going to pretty much ignore all of that, although I do know that um, Song Joon-ki did a uh, bicycling tour around Sydney once. Oh, (laughs) which they put on telly as a couple of episodes from the L channel, which is like the fashion magazine thing. So he's been down here on a cycling tour. I thought that was kind of cool. (laughs) They're both excellent characters. Mm -hmm. I feel like they fit together well as part of this Misfits crew. Now, the other two main crew members. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, so we have our muscle, you could say. I mean, they're all pretty formidable, to be honest, but Tiger Puck. So he is played by uh, Jin Song-kyu and he's got tattoos. He's got this kind of dreadlocky mohawk. Uh, he is 
kind of the engine room guy. So he does a lot of the stuff about, you know, I guess the equivalent of like loading the coals into the steam train portion of, of the ship. So he is a former kind of gang member or like drug kingpin. And he has done a lot of crazy stuff in his time, but escaped all of that, escaped you know, his criminal life on earth and has now kind of set out on victory. And to be honest, he's a big softy inside. Like, I don't think that's a spoiler, but he's a great character because he is tough, but, you know, he's a little marshmallow inside, just like Veronica Mars. (laughs) So Now, um, I I know this guy. I first saw him in The Good, The Bad and The Weird. Ah, so you've seen him before. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's the um, <laughs> how do I even describe this? The neon crazy western action film, uh, oh, Kim cool. Ji Woon. And we have also seen him in Kingdom. Ah, of course. Yes. He has worked on a Netflix property before. I mean, it seems like they all have. So that's pretty cool. So he's a great character. And we also have Yu Hai Jin. So that is the robot Bubs. So the kind of voice and I guess this, what do you call the movement is done by Yu Hai Jin and Robot Bubs is a former military robot. So kind of helps around, it doesn't help around the ship, not really. It's kind of just another crew member who, you know, does a bit of extra work and can get out there and in the atmosphere and protect the ship and stuff like that. Well, he is actually a key member in the actual space-sweeping role of the ship. Yeah. I should expand upon that a little bit. What they're actually doing is capturing space junk. Yes. Yeah, yeah. There's kind of – you get a a couple of scenes where they show there's a – I guess like a harpooning type system where you hook on like you're fishing in space basically, but for garbage, and then you can kind of grab it with the ship and reel it in and so on, and they sell it for money, and that's how they can afford to live. Yeah, it's obviously also to help stop the orbital itself and all of its vast complexity from being damaged by fast-moving space junk, which is a problem now. Yeah, exactly. And so you can imagine, I mean, keep going the way you're going in a couple of decades, there'd be all kinds of junk flying around out there. So, yeah, it's equivalent of a space kind of garbage man, I suppose. Yeah, hazardous to both George Clooney and Sandra Bullock. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I thought uh, she is a great character, actually, and, again, fits in nicely. They all have a very nice chemistry together, the four main characters. I mean, yeah, they are kind of stereotypes, but I think they're well done, and there's enough there that, you know, of meaty character that I forgive any cut-and-paste stereotypical elements of those key four. And should we go into... Maybe the fifth character or? Yes, but I believe we will play a track first. Ah, there you go. It's a teaser for you. Yes. (laughs) This one's really cool. Now, I only just heard about this, and this is a Melbourne group, right? So picture that in terms of a space thing. And it's a group called Malkura, an acoustic trio from Australia. And I may have seen them as buskers Hmm. in the Burke Street Mall. They've got this fusion going on, which is appropriate when we're talking about spaceships and fusion drives and so on. And they've got like Latino rhythms and um, flamenco and all a bit rock and roll. It just sounds enormously cool. (laughs) So this is from their second album. And you've got uh, Joss Vock as lead guitar, Stephen Angle as rhythm guitar, and Simon Wood on percussion. Forgive me, I've not heard their names pronounced, so... I'll go with the way I think. (laughs) But I'm willing to be humbly corrected by anybody. (laughs) 
Well, maybe not humbly. Okay, so this is um, from their album Malkura 2, and it's spelled M-A-L-C-U-R-A, Malkura 2, and it's the ballad of the humble space jockey. Perfect. Yeah, and it just sounds so cool, and the album artwork is also excellent. You know, lots of space themes in there. Uh, Looks like actually like a a man in a space suit and some some almost Starfleet-designed uniforms and a – and a serape with a, a big hat on a guy with a holding a gunslinger type thing. So you know you got that whole thing going. This is very much the vibe that we've got happening for the show today. So I'm keen to hear this one. Yeah, it's the ballad of a humble space jockey. Hey, this is Craig Charles, Dave Listed off Red Dwarf. You're listening to Space Core Directive Three Triple R FM. So smeg and get on with it. Oh, very spacey. Very mellow. I like, I can just imagine, you know, drifting around in space, listening to that tune. Very nice. What was that again, Rob? That was The Ballad of the Humble Space Jockey by Malkura, a Melbourne group. And it's from their album Malkura 2 with lots of space themes in it and on the cover too of an astronaut. Perfect for some zero G weightless listening. <laughs> Now, we are talking about the science fiction movie on Netflix called Space Sweepers. We've described the villain, played by Richard Armitage. We've talked about the crew of the good ship, Victory. I keep calling it the good ship. I don't know if it's exactly a good ship. (laughs) (laughs) And their job is to capture space junk and stop it from destroying the orbital that circles the Earth in 2092, the dying Earth. And that would be enough of a plot for a lot of movies. <laughs> it would be, but we they do then go ahead and introduce another character. So we do have, and this is in the trailer, so I don't think this is a spoiler at all, but there is a young girl, Dorothy, and uh, she's played by Puck Yudin, and she kind of crosses paths with this group of ragtag space adventurers and she comes into their lives unexpectedly and she's got a few, an interesting backstory of her own, let's say, but she's adorable. She quickly endears herself to the entire crew, much to their chagrin. (laughs) And and then, of course, the uh, more dangerous undertones of her past, we they start to unfold and the crew sort of finds themselves in a more dangerous situation than they normally would be because it's hard. Space sweeping is not a safe occupation to begin with, but then they find themselves crossing paths with this kind of um, military outfit that is sent out by UTS, which is the, the corporation that we mentioned earlier, and they're kind of this robotic soldiery type troop with these you know, full-on outfit, very high-tech Halo-esque kind of stormtrooper-y energy. And so they've got them after them. They've got this other mysterious group. They're not really sure what they're about. And basically we're trying to figure out, you know, who Dorothy is, a little bit about her, won't say anything more, while on the run from various people trying to kill them. So, I mean, this isn't a new plot, but I do think that the execution and some of the nice scenes they used to set up this story was done quite well. And Park Yirin is very cute and I think she does a very good job of being our kind of core mysterious object that keeps our story puttering along as we kind of head to the final climactic 
battle, I guess. Yeah, battle. It, it feels very Fifth Element or or even um, Tomorrowland. There's an element in mm. <laughs> another element in that one, mm-hmm. or um, that other one that we watched not too far in the distant past, Alita: Battle Angel. Oh yeah, of course, yes. Mm-hmm. There are elements in there that do remind me a lot of that whole kind of trope of the young chosen one and mm. who's going to be the MacGuffin. And, <laughs> but but it, it's handled very well in this one. Mm. And it's also helped by some stunning production design. There was a lot of vision put into this. I can kind of see there's a very clear sense of what this world looks like and some of the technology in terms of the kinds of ships that we're on and the kinds of places that we dock and things like that. I thought, I agree. I think some of it was really cool. Some of it looked very foreboding, but in this real futuristic dark, dirty, like a dump in the future kind of vibe. I do wonder, only one element of that, which is rivets on portholes and around hatches and stuff. I just don't know if you'd actually rivet things, I think, because that would introduce a a breach in the hull. And I just, you know, I just wonder why rivets? Why not just weld it? Because it looks more kind of tech punks, you know, that kind of vibe. It's no fun if it's just a smooth weld, Rob. You've got to have all those bolts and clanking and things sticking out of the wall. (laughs) I missed a rivet. I have set more rivets than most people have had breakfast (laughs) in my life. (laughs) Maybe that's why I'm sort of going, oh, rivets. (laughs) But it it is part of the vibe. It's a very junkyard vibe. And a lot of the interiors, it's all mishmash of kind of furniture with holes in it and stuff, but it all comes together in this really nice way, I think. The vision is very, very clear. This isn't a shiny future. It's kind of cobbled together from mishmash. Yeah, except in the in the upper sort of oh. echelons of the company where everything is just utopian. And so boring though, like so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, given the choice, I probably would live in the utopia over the, you know, boiling earth, but it was yeah. very plain, very, yeah, a little bit creepy. So, but you're right, the contrast is there. They've done that. They've done that pretty obviously. You know, and some stunning imagery that just comes out as as whimsical at times, like um, Bubs the robot sitting in a deck chair on the hull of the ship Victory. So good. (laughs) Outside in the vacuum. Yeah, that was pretty cool. I like what they did with that robot character, actually. I think that was kind of a nice touch. So, look, it is a movie where things go kinetic very quickly. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen this on the big screen. Look, it's okay to have seen it on Netflix, mm. but I would also have liked to have seen it on a, on a, on a an IMAX screen or something because it looks ginormous. Absolutely. All that, like, you know, flying detritus and bits and pieces flung and that depth of field, that would have been pretty cool in the cinema, I think. As with a lot of these space operas, are usually best seen on the big screen. As you can gather, we did talk about, the way this film gets put together mm. and it's, it sounds a little bit like it's got a lot of derivative tropes and it does, it does. to start with, mm-hmm. but I think that it energetically rises above all of those. Agree. Mm. 
and puts it together with a great deal of heart. I think so too. I think this could have been a bit of a flop if that core group wasn't as strong as it is because I do think the story, there's so many elements we've seen before and it's a bit of a patchwork of a lot of things. I do think the ending does come together really nicely and I was pleasantly surprised by where we went in the end and I liked that. But I do think the main strength is the chemistry between those core group of characters and how they build out that core heart of the film. And I think that really is its strength and it makes it something a bit more worthwhile than what could have been a paper thin sci-fi experience. Yeah. There was some twists in the, in the story that, that had me gasping in delight. Like, yeah. Oh, that's so clever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, there was also a couple of things where I was like, oh, that's a stretch, but I'm going to let you do this. That's okay. Yes. <laughs> it's like that. It's like they earned the right to do that. Exactly. They did some stuff well that I wasn't expecting to be pulled off that way. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to give you this and I'm going to forgive you that some of the overarching world building was a bit weak. Like I think that whole what happened to Earth where we are now, they don't pay much attention to that broader story, but that's fine because we're really focused in on our core group of of folks and the Dorothy storyline. So I kind of was like, okay, you're doing the Dorothy bit well, so I'm happy to go with Dorothy's the kid. I'm happy to go along with this. So this is Joe Sung-hee. He's the director of Space Sweepers, which is now on Netflix. And I just give it a in a zero-G rating of, yeah, nah, maybe a very firm, yeah, I just was exhilarated by this movie. Yeah, it was really fun to watch. I think I went in, I thought, I just want a fun space film that I can just enjoy and come out of feeling like I have, you know, spent the two hours well. And I did get that. And I was pleasantly surprised by how invested I was in the end. It was a touch too long. I think it could have been trimmed a little. But, yeah, really pleasantly surprised by this one. So it's a yeah from me as well. Mm. All right. Now, I would like to pop straight into Megan's review of Love and Other Thought Experiments here with a little tiny bit of a a musical preamble. And there's a reason why I want to play this bit of music and you will know what it is. Hi there, I'm Jen Saska. And I'm Sylvia Saska. And And we're we're the Twisted Twisted Twins. And you're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple RFM. Did you love it? That's a good for you too. Heck yeah. Yeah, we all know that as Roxy Music's Avalon. So, why did we play this? <laughs> it's because the book that Megan is going to talk about, Love and Other Thought Experiments, is by Sophie Anna Ward. And she had a hand in the music video. Yes. <laughs> Which was a bright surprise to me. So I really enjoyed, that was quite a nice segue, Rob, and I think very nice to come down from space and get a bit more of a on-the-ground pensive experience of what it is to be human because that's kind of the experience that you get when reading this book. So the book is Love and Other Thought Experiments and it is by Sophie Ward who did play a role in Avalon the music video. Now, I did not know of her second life as an actor. (laughs) I was just like, oh, yeah, it's the name on the cover. She wrote this book. Great. Oh, I'm going to research it because I'm going to talk about it on the show. And so I was pleasantly surprised to see that she is an actress. She's been acting since she was 10, and she was also in Young Sherlock Holmes, Miss Marple, the TV series, and she was in 
the Carrie Fukunaga version of Jane Eyre as well, and she's the daughter of Simon Ward, who's another British actor. So, but in this role, her role as as author, she's written this book called Love and Other Thought Experiments, which was long listed for the Booker Prize last year, 2020. And it is actually her first novel. She did have a short novel published, but I think this kind of counts as her first long novel. And I was really surprised to hear that actually, because it's quite an accomplished piece of work and very ambitious. So I'd kind of assumed that perhaps it was a second novel, third novel, but it's her first foray into being published and book a prize nom to boot. So you'd probably categorize this under a couple of labels if we're going to go down the categorization route. You might be surprised to think why I would cover it on Zero G, but there are metaphysical themes in the book. It's very philosophical and there is a science fictional element. And I'm not going to say any more than that because I was surprised to see it in the novel myself. So I'll tell you a little bit more about it. It is a very experimental book in itself, and it's basically an examination of loss and love and family and kind of human experiences and relationships. So it's quite short. Each chapter is a different story from a different perspective, and some of the styles between the stories do differ. So I quite like that. I think it's a very accomplished writer who can do a different style, different character point of view in a collect, in kind of a collection like this. Cause sometimes I find it ends up all sounding the same, but some of these were quite distinct and they do seem unrelated, but then you start to realize that all of the chapters are connected. Each chapter does begin with a small vignette, which describes a different thought experiment, hence the title, Love and Other Thought Experiments. And so you will start to maybe draw some connections between that particular thought experiment and what's happening in that story. So, I mean, that's a little interesting writing kind of trope, I guess. And I could have probably done without that element, but I did, I did enjoy that. And I did like learning more about thought experiments as well. There's a couple that I thought, oh, look those up later, but that's kind of not the crux of what we're talking about here. So it's really, I'll tell you a little bit about how the novel starts off because it is a novel, even though it's sort of a collection of parts. So it's about a couple, Rachel and Eliza, And so this is also queer literature as well. So I feel like if you want to be reading more diversely, keep this one in mind because it's really great. And Sophie Ward herself um, is queer. So they want to have a baby and one evening, I mean, that's not their defining characteristic, but where they're at in life is they're, they're thinking about having a baby. They've been together for a while. So one evening Rachel wakes up and she is convinced that an ant has crawled into her eye and that she can feel the ant in there. <laughs> Rob's just grimaced and can imagine, is imagining it. It's a pretty icky, it's described really well too, like the squishy eyeball and stuff, and I was like, oh, yuck. So Rachel is convinced this has happened, and she says to Eliza, you know, this has happened, I'm sure of it, you have to believe me, you believe me about this ant, right? Like it's living inside my head now, it's gone inside my body. And Eliza, who's very science-minded, she's kind of the more pragmatic one in the pair, she isn't really sure what to believe and it kind of then spreads out from there into this big tree of connections and it's a bit about trust and perception but it's also about, you know, believing a partner for the sake of believing them and what that means to them as well. 
Also, you know, the nugget of truth about did an ant crawl in there? Did it not? What's going on? (laughs) What's this thing about the ant? Why is this book about an ant? In a great way, in that you're kind of on this journey where you're reading about this ant crawling into an eye is the main premise of the book. Uh, And then it's about so much more. It starts to unfold different stories, different characters. So I won't say too much more about where the story goes from there, because I think part of the joy is connecting the dots yourself as you read the book. And it is, as I mentioned earlier, very philosophical. So there's some ideas in there that it's trying to get you to think about. And I was always surprised. So I'd start a new story and it would go in a direction that I was not expecting, but I liked that about the book. I was very much there for that ride. Also, because I knew it was short, I kind of knew that whatever experimental journey I was being taken on wasn't going to be dragged out. So I think that is important to note. And I really love her style of writing, to be honest. I think I would definitely read something else from her. I mean, the best way to describe it, and this sounds bad by sort of starting with a negative, but I don't think it will be for everyone because it's a little bit frilly. Like there's some academic frills. It's a bit fancy in some of the ideas. Some might find it a bit pretentious. I'm not going to lie. I think some of the criticism has been it's a bit up its own butt. But um, uh, Pretentious? Moi? (laughs) (laughs) So... It does, and it does get weird at the end. Like it really goes in a direction that you're not expecting. And I think some people will be a bit affronted by that. I found that it had enough heart in there that I was along for the ride already. I was quite connected and I really wanted to see how it would unfold. It's also, there's a lot of those small moments in life, those kinds of descriptions that I really gravitate to. So even if you're talking about the broad human condition, if you can break it down into some moment in the day or something like that, that really resonates with me, I really enjoy that. And I'm, I'm happy for you to be as wanky as you like because you've still managed to bring it down to earth a little. And she does do that, I feel, from, from my perspective. So... I think I would recommend it as a thought piece, like a something to talk about with someone. I think you've, I think it's a book that you want to talk about with people. And I like that about it as well. I think it's nice when there's a conversation starter element. I did find, despite what I've said about it being a little academic, not academic, like there's no, it's not like there's footnotes and stuff. It's just the way it's written is very fancy. <laughs> I don't know how else to say. It is easy to get into and it is easy to read. So that might sound like a contradiction, but it I found it engaging. And I think that it is original is my main thing, that it was unlike anything I'd read before. Some of the ideas, sure, but the way it was put together and kind of what she was trying to do, like I said before, very ambitious, but pulled it off. So I feel like, yeah, love interest of Sherlock Holmes indeed. She's got her own chops. <laughs> So, yeah, I would recommend this one in general as a yeah. It is Love and Other Thought Experiments by Sophie Ward. And I think that if you're interested in something a bit different, give it a crack. Like I said, it's not very long. So if you find you're you're not getting into it, either push through or you can put it aside. But I think it's one to try at the very least. Okay. I'm fascinated that it's by Sophie Ward because (laughs) not only did she um, play a dancer in Roxy Music's Avalon music video, Mm. which is which is Arthurian, by the way. Mm. Oh, yeah, of course. Yes, she also played 
a character called Isabel in Babylon 5 Crusade, the spin-off oh. of Babylon 5. And Isabel was a techno-mage and the girlfriend of Galen. Oh, great. Played by Peter Woodward, the, the main techno-mage of Babylon mm-hmm. 5 Crusade. And she was in an episode called The Path of Sorrows. So I, I feel that's all very sort of <laughs> synergistic, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is Peter Woodward. I play the techno-mage Galen in Babylon 5 and Crusade. And you are listening to Zero G. Who do you serve? And who do you trust? Now... Normally we'd play a Bowie track, but Megan's provided a track that fits this particular writer. Mm. And in any case, Sophie Ward also had a non-speaking role in the Tony Scott vampire movie, The Hunger. Yes, yes, one of her early roles. (laughs) She's listed as Girl in London House. (laughs) And, of course, David Bowie is one of the vampires in that. Well, there you go. Connection so a, made. The <laughs> connection made. <laughs> so what track are we going out with, Megan? So I think we'll go out with a sort of a more pensive track. So what I picked was she did also appear in the Jane Eyre that Kerry Fukunaga did. That was the one with Mia Vasikovska and Michael Fassbender. So I, re- I remember that as having a lovely soundtrack. So I've picked something from that. It's by Dario Maria Nelly. Sorry if I butchered that. Featuring Jack Liebeck. And it's I picked Wandering Jane. Hmm. So this is Wandering Jan signing off from Zero G. And Megan McHugh signing off as well. And thank you very much to our podcaster, Kayla Larson, and my partner, Gail. And Carl, my partner as well. Joe Brunatic coming up next with Astral Glamour. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. <laughs>